This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your tablet, smartphone, and desktop. Support the show and get a free audiobook of your choice by visiting audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Follow Standard Orbit, Mr. Chekhov, and take us in. Hi, sir. Is the word of Landru. Joy to you, friends, and thanks for joining us here in Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated show to the original series. My name is Drew, or Landru, and this is my co-host Mike from Commentary Trek Stars. Hello. And we're joined today by John Tenuto, Star Trek con movie expert guy. <laughs> is that your official title, John? I believe that's what my checks say from uh, nobody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Thanks for asking me, guys. Thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we were shocked to find out the other day that just before Leonard Nimoy passed away, Harv Bennett passed away, which uh, he passed away before Leonard Nimoy, but we found out after. So so here this week, we're going to talk about Harv Bennett and what he brought to the franchise. Yeah, for those people who don't know, Harv Bennett was the producer of... Star Trek's two through five, and uh, in a lot of ways is responsible for revitalizing the franchise and and you know pushing it in a certain direction after uh, what some feel was a misstep with Star Trek the Motion Picture, and and John since you know you know so much about you know the history of Star Trek two in particular and really Bennett's history is very closely tied into that. We thought, oh, it'd be great to have you on to sort of uh, give people a, a behind-the-scenes look at, at at what he brought to the franchise. So let's just set the table here. Uh, it, it's 1980. Star Trek The Motion Picture has just come out. It was a huge success, and yet a lot of people, at least the impression that I get, correct me if I'm wrong here, John, but a lot of people went to see it and thought, you know, oh, my God, new Star Trek. This is going to be amazing. And then they got in the theater and were like, yeah, that was big and long. And and uh, <laughs> and, and maybe maybe it could be a little tighter. Maybe it could be a little more action packed. Maybe it could be a little more like the original series. So I'm guessing that the studio was kind of like, okay, oh yeah, and also from the studio perspective, I'm sure they were thinking like, this needs to be a little cheaper, and by that, I mean... A lot. A lot cheaper. So, the hunt began to find someone to take over this franchise, is that right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the the there were uh, there was sort of a perception of Star Trek, the motion picture, as Star Trek, the motionless picture, right? Because there was... And to be fair, you know, to, to Robert Wise, who's an amazing director, um, you know, he was literally the, the prints were delivered to the theaters wet. You know, I mean, the, the special effects had been a serious uh, challenge and uh, so was the script. And really, no one had done that before. Right. I mean, there, there had been TV shows that were turned into movies like, you know, the Batman movie in the 1960s or things like that. But those were kind of disposable, you know, ca- cash quickly, you know, um, 
it wasn't like 10 years after a show they were resurrecting a movie with the same cast and all of that again. And so, uh, you know, it wasn't perceived to be, you know, certainly financially it was successful, but it wasn't perceived to be, uh, you know, worthy of, of restarting or jumpstarting a franchise. And so um, Barry Diller and Michael Eisner and Charles Blue Dorn, who were all sort of the heads of, you know, Golf and Western and Paramount and all of that, um, started a search for a producer who could take over um, the duties for a Star Trek two, which was originally to be a TV movie of the week. And, um, um, you know, their, their feeling right or wrong was that a, a lot of the problem had been sort of, you know, would, could Gene Roddenberry translate this into a film series? And so they wanted to go with someone new and keep Roddenberry on as, as a, as a consultant and somebody who had a voice, but not actively producing it because of the costs, uh, which was, you know, about $45 million. And so, um, they turned to a man named who was born, actually his real name is Harvard, uh, Bennett Fishman, um, who was born in Chicago, uh, right near myself. And, and I think Mike, you're from Chicagoland, right? Yep. Um, uh, so, um, you know, who had had a string of very successful science fiction television franchises. He did the $6 million man. In fact, he was the voice you hear at the start that says Steve Austin, a man barely alive. Right. And then it's Oscar Goldman's, but the first few lines of the opening of $6 million man is Hart Bennett's voice. And he had done, you know, bionic woman and, you know, had had a, a string of successful science fiction shows uh, and had done so, you know, in a cost effective way. Um, and, uh, you know, in a very imaginative way. So, uh, because of that, you know, he was seen as a perfect person to come in. He was brought in. They, they had asked him what he thought of the first film. He said, you know, it was grand and epic, but that ultimately he felt it wasn't successful, that it was, it was kind of boring. And, and they asked him if he could make, you know, there's an expletive in there, but since I want to be polite, he said, could you make this for less than, you know, bleeping $45 million? Um, and his answer was that where I come from, I could make you, you know, two or three movies for that amount of money. So, uh, you know, because he was honest and they thought that he was, you know, about what, you know, and had the same feelings they had about the first movie, um, he became the person who they turned to, to, um, start working on what was initially this TV movie of the week. It's kind of weird, you know, that they made the decision that they couldn't, uh, keep Roddenberry on because of, of the the movie production side of things when at this point in time they were kind of um, skewing it towards going back to television. You know, that, I don't know. That seems, that seems kind of strange. You think maybe, uh, I mean, may, maybe, maybe they were just so unhappy with, with how motion picture was produced that they, they were like, we just need to cut all ties. But it seems like bringing it back to TV and bringing it back to that scale would be more, in keeping with Roddenberry's skill set. Yeah, I think perhaps their perception was it was still, you know, although it was a movie of the week, it was still a movie, you know, in, in their eyes perhaps. So I also think there were a lot of people that didn't want to come back, right? I mean, I think Leonard Nimoy had had some reticence about coming back because it was not a happy production, you know. It was a very stressful um Time I know that Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner had spent, you know, particularly amongst many other people, uh, had spent a great deal of effort trying to improve the story. But I mean, they filmed the movie that, in essence, they didn't, they weren't quite sure how it was going to end when they were filming it. And so, um, you know, I think that whole world, the blame, right? If it had been wildly successful and critically successful, and fans had loved it, then all the praise would have gone to Roddenberry, right? Um, 
uh, rightly or wrongly. And same way, you know, the blame is going to go to Roddenberry rightly or wrongly for whatever perceived failures there are for that film. Okay, so so Star Trek Two is is handed to Bennett, and now he's got the the challenge of of figuring out a way to make this work um, on budget and uh, in order to sort of maybe grab an audience that they might have lost with motion picture. So what what was it that he did? Well, he you know he well he was he he had a stroke of genius, and I know that uh, everybody you know Nicholas Meyer everyone credits him with figuring all this out that that he he really was it's not an overstatement and he had said in your introduction that without without him and his hand guiding all of this then then it's unlikely that two would have been what it was and if it had not been successful then it, it you know it probably would have meant the end of star trek at that point so um his idea was if you can't do a sequel to the movie and if one of the big complaints about the film was that it was a lot more like 2001 and not a lot like the humanity that we had seen in the original TV show that you would do a sequel to the original TV show rather than a sequel to the film. And so he screened uh, the original Star Trek. He was, you know, familiar with it from a distance, but really during that time period was producing the Mod Squad and was not, you know, watching Star Trek regularly. So he screened all 79 episodes and uh, was looking for an idea uh, for a sequel. And, And Space Seed, of course, you know, really, it ends in a way begging for a sequel, right? It ends with the question of what if we came back here in a hundred years, and you know, what would we find from the seed that was planted today? And um, so he gets the idea of having Khan um, be the basis for the sequel. So in November of 1980, he writes a an outline that he calls War of the Generations, and and although it's very different than the story that we would eventually know as Wrath of Khan, there are a lot of the themes that carry over. Um, in into the the film that we know, there's a you know there's there's dis- discussions about aging, the characters aging, which the first film had been kind of frightened uh, of dealing with. Um, the story in that outline is there's a rebellion on this Federation colony, and uh, Kirk is sent there to uh, try to resolve the situation or find out what's going on. And when he's there, uh, he discovers that his old love Carol Marcus is there. And I've never been able to necessarily confirm this, but I think Carol was named after Harv Bennett's uh, wife at that time. Um, but, uh, you know, and then that Carol had a son named David. And David, we find out, is the one actually leading this rebellion. And, um, you know, he kidnaps Kirk and he's going to, you know, kill Kirk. And then he discovers that Kirk is his father. And um, through the machinations of the story, uh, it's revealed that Khan is actually the power behind this rebellion, that he's manipulating people. And that, uh, so Kirk and David, you know, team up and, and, and defeat um, Khan. And, uh, you know, Spock isn't even in this draft because at that time the thinking was that Leonard Nimoy might, may not return. And they wanted to be able to craft a story that, that w- w- would be worked around him. Although um, Harv Bennett also deserves credit for realizing you, you cannot do Star Trek without Leonard Nimoy and did everything that he possibly could to to assuage any worries that Nimoy had that there was going to be a repeat of, you know, a Star Trek the motion picture. He promised him a great death scene. He he uh, he uh, you know cast Leonard Nimoy in a, a man call, a woman called Golda, and then he goes on and wins an Emmy because he's so amazingly good in it. Um, and really tries to make sure that the actors are a part of the process at, from the start in helping to 
to have a voice in their characters that they had obviously known so well. And, and so he, you know, he really, he's, he's, he's creating Carol. He created David. He, he gets the idea of bringing Khan into the story that one of the big themes has to be about aging. Um, and, uh, you know, and then, and then really makes all the important decisions, brings on Nicholas Meyer, who then, you know, it creates this wonderful script and directs the film. And so, you know, his contributions to Wrath of Khan are just his fingerprint is all over that film. He's what he's what I like to call um, is a term in sociology called anonymous extraordinaries, um, which are people that, you know, usually with social movements that are, uh, you know, anonymous people that that are really the ones behind the scenes. They're the ones that are um, you know, working really hard, and there's usually a celebrity or something in front of the cause, but they're the ones that are really doing the work. And I, I think that Harv Bennett qualifies as somebody like that, at least in terms of you know extraordinary behind the scenes people that um, you know really did a lot more than we think that he did. It wasn't just producing and, and doing the money side of it. He was really the creative force behind Star Trek II um, in in figuring out how to do the film. I was impressed looking at his biography here that. Uh, I, I I knew that he produced and and I knew that he was the uh, the one who did so much in Star Trek too. I didn't realize that he was so involved in the other movies too. Like he wrote the script for Star Trek three and and hate or love Star Trek three. Uh, you have to admit that the dialogue in Star Trek three is really good. Yeah, you know one of the, my favorite memos that we have a behind the scenes memo is a memo actually between Meyer and Nicholas Meyer and um, Harv Bennett where. Uh, Nicholas Meyer was given a copy of, of Harvard Bennett's Star Trek three script in an early draft. And, and Nicholas Meyer had made recommendations and suggestions. And um, one of them was recognizing that the big theme of the film was abandonment, you know, that, that, you know, Kirk had abandoned Spock that, you know, um, that, uh, you know, there was the idea of how to, how does he rectify that, you know, Spock in a way had abandoned the crew, although for good purpose, you know, um, you know, Sarek, feels that Kirk abandoned Spock. I mean, there's a big theme throughout the whole film of that. And, and really Meyer kind of pointing that out. And I think that, and then doing other things, you, you know, Nicholas Meyer suggested moving Sarek's part in the story, which had come sort of in the middle to the beginning. So we bookended, you know, you'd see him at the beginning and you, he's the one who gives Kirk his mission. And then you see him at the end when the mission's fulfilled. And, um, but he commented, Nicholas Meyer commented on how really good that script was, even in its early phases. We, even when the, the, you know, the villains were the Romulans and not the Klingons initially in, 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 in uh, Harv Bennett's script. And he wrote that script very quickly. And it shows you how talented he was that even in an early draft, he was getting that kind of praise from somebody who's really known as a great scriptwriter and storyteller. Um, I, I'm sorry, but <laughs> the idea that there are script notes from Nicholas Meyer on Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock <laughs> is kind of blowing my mind right now. Uh, that seems like the most amazing thing ever in the history of things. Uh, there's... <laughs> that's insane oh my god wow well i think you know they you know they formed a good friendship with each other and you know uh, uh, a good working relationship with each other they worked with each other again on star trek 4 right Harv bennett co-wrote the script for star trek 4 basically taking uh the this the scenes that happen in the federation of the future are pretty much Harv bennett and the scenes that take place on earth from you know, our, the contemporary 1980s Earth is uh, is Nicholas Meyer. I mean, so you could see them working in tandem with each other to produce, 
you know, a really great story for, and, and script for Star Trek Four, which was, of course, done at what Leonard Nimoy's brilliant idea, right? I mean, Nimoy really is the inspiration for that story. And and so, you know, and even Star Trek Five, you know, he, he, uh, he uh, where he has a little cameo as Admiral Robert Bennett, you know, sends Kirk on his mission. Uh, you know, he he helped to improve that story and that script from its original, you know, we could say it wasn't ultimately, it wasn't successful perhaps uh, from some people's point of view, but, but it it would have been very different, you know, and probably much worse without Bennett's kind of guidance in terms of, you know, how do you do this? How do you do a search for God and how do you make that thing work? And, you know, and uh, so he really has, he's, he's all over, you know, all over Star Trek and, 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 you know, and really I have never, you know, there was some, there was a problem we could get into a Star Trek six, but, you know, usually very high praise uh, for him, both as a producer and really a gentleman and a, you know, somebody who was able to cooperate and work with other people. Um, You know, him and Gene Roddenberry went back to the 1960s, right? He had uh, worked on a a Roddenberry, um, pilot that didn't sell called the, the long hunt of april savage in 1965 right before star trek and the two of them did not have a really great uh you know the working relationship on that there had been some tension and um you know here they are back again right in a very tense relationship with each other um but to his credit you know um it was wise enough to listen to Gene Roddenberry's suggestions and recommendations, although they were not legally obligated to do so, uh, you certainly wanted to keep Gene Roddenberry as the creator, not only happy, but listen to his ideas because he, he knew Star Trek better than anyone else as the person who created that world. But, um, you know, he knew when to listen and when not to listen. He took people's suggestions, you know, um, he, he was somebody who opened his creative process up to other people. And I think that that in, in, engendered him to people and would want to make people, you know, keep helping him, you know, or to make suggestions to him. Uh, I know he even asked, you know, uh, he, he went to the fan community for Star Trek II, which was a brilliant idea, right? He went to um, uh, people like Joe Trimble uh, and, and uh, you know, people like Val Jagger, who ran sort of the Mensa there was like a there's a Mensa uh, Star Trek group and they they produce a really wonderful uh, fanzine at that time and to really go to the fans and 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 to write letters to you know Interstat and things like that that were the fan communities of that era asking them what they thought uh, having Bijot Trimble give script notes on Star Trek Two and having Walter Koenig do a Trekkie pass as it was called on Star Trek Two I mean he they really um, you know he was very much willing to bring in other people and. And that collaborative spirit, I think, permeated all of Star Trek II. Nicholas Meyer had that same perspective, and that's why everybody wanted to come back for three. Yeah, that really does seem like sort of the the key to um, Star Trek II's success. I mean, you said that he wrote the original script for it and everything, and I I can see um, how some people, especially if they're in, in the role of like a producer where they essentially have the final say, they they would say like, no, this is mine, I'm holding on to it. But he really was willing to seek outside assistance and and put together the best team, which I guess is really what a producer's job should be. And in the process, created like one of the best movies ever made, which is awesome. But moving on to Star Trek Three, so now he's got sort of a different challenge as a producer, and. I'm wondering, and and this is one of the reasons why I think the the notes from Meyer would be fascinating, is um, because 
your job as a producer on that one seems to maybe be in conflict with your job as a writer in that you just made a movie which had um, certain thematic elements uh, which in order to uh, bring back, let's say, the, the, the biggest name that you can in the third movie, you kind of need to throw a lot of that stuff away. And yet, as a producer, you know that if you have a chance to bring Spock back, you need to bring him back. So, like, what was there conflict there on his part? Or, or I mean, like, what was his, uh, his thought process when putting together Star Trek Three, which he did write himself, like you were saying? Yeah, I mean, he, they had a shorter window on three, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, being able to get it out. But it was more of an assurity, you know, once, you know, Star Trek Two opens and it's the biggest box office opening weekend of all time, you know, then three was going to come, you know. And um, his, I think, you know, when you look at the original drafts of three, that you've got Spock as almost, I mean, I don't want to over, you know, overstate the comparison, but it's almost like an Obi-Wan-ish you know, ghost apparitional, you know, um, what, what, what is only hinted at, right? So you have in, in the film that we know McCoy is sitting in his Spock's quarters, right, by himself when Kirk comes in and he's, you know, speaking in, in Spock's voice. And, um, you know, you, you, so you have hints of that through the film where sort of Spock has this almost supernatural presence in the film, but it, it was a much more sort of, you know, in-your-face apparitional ghost-like image which made sense right you want to see leonard nimoy in a film i mean you know if star trek 2 is brilliant because khan and kirk are never in the same room together really except via view screen and star trek 3 brilliant because the film is the search for spock and spock is in it but leonard nimoy isn't in it until the last you know 10 minutes you know and so um i think the feeling was well you bring spock you know you, you, you have Leonard Nimoy play Spock and he plays it throughout the film, you know, but he's not there dispensing, you know, Obi-Wan advice. It isn't like that. It's much more like it is in the film where it's, you know, this, this, this sort of supernatural Katra kind of, you know, uh, un, people are uncertain what this means, you know, that they're seeing him. And, and that was some of the notes too, that uh, Nicholas Meyer gave was, you know, like, wh why is this here? What does this, what does this mean? You know, why, why are, why, is, why are we having that done? And I think that, uh, you know, there may have been this, this um, you know, at this time that he's writing, there's no assurity that Leonard Nimoy is directing this film. Um, that would come throughout later on through the process. So, of course, you'd want to use Leonard Nimoy in a, in a much more meaningful way as an actor if that is his role is only as an actor. And then when he's a director, that it, then it becomes something, you know, very different. But, um, you know, in the early drafts, there's the Romulans, and the decision was made, again, you know, Romulans because... Uh, there had been Klingons in the first film, you know, and the decision was that we needed to use a villain that was much more, you know, would be much more interested in, in, in sort of the intrigue of getting a weapon and that sort of thing. But then realizing, well, the, you know, the general public knows the Klingons, the general public may not know the Romulans as much. And then that shift, which is why you still have that carryover, right, of of it being called a Klingon bird of prey. Um and, uh, you know, of course, the Klingons and we know Romulans share technology, so that works out. But that was meant to be a Romulan bird of prey, you know, and when you see images of them planning the film, behind them are pictures up of the Romulan bird of prey, you know, in the early days of, of making the film. So, um, you know, he had that tension of, 
of uh, you know trying to sort of use the actor you know in the right way I think was a big concern, and then also tell a great story you know and uh, I think his intention and I think Nicholas Meyer mentions that in the notes too. In fact, I know he does, is that this was meant to be an episode writ large, that that more than any of the other films that this was meant to be like an episode of Star Trek where all the characters were featured, where um, it was them, you know, kind of the, a mock time, sort of break the rules for your friend, that sort of theme. And, um, you know, the, the one thing I know that he struggled with and this and four um, from the production memos was to avoid what was called television writing. And in fact, Meyer praises him for for destroying the Enterprise because the television side of any writer, right, that the guy who comes from television is you have, you know, back then the characters have to be in the same place at the end, right, as they do at the beginning. Uh, Jackie Gleason called it the illusion of change, right? You only thought that, that uh, you know, um, the characters learned something on Honeymooners, but you, you, that isn't how TV worked back then. You needed to be able to watch any episode in any order you wanted to. And so they had to be in the same place at the end. And so, um, you know, Meyer liked that he broke out of his television thinking and television producer hat and was willing to shake things up and change things and do something really dramatic like kill Spock in two and and destroy the Enterprise in three. So I think he he knew how to make a film, I think, um, and knew how to do it. But there was struggles at the start of how do I use Leonard Nimoy properly in this film and still make it scientifically believable so he's not just, hey, I'm back in five minutes and then they go on some other adventure. Okay, so so Star Trek Three is um, almost as successful as Star Trek Two, um, certainly a, a huge success, and um, Star Trek Four becomes a certainty, and of course the studio is going to keep on Harve Bennett, you know, keep the streak alive. And now Harv Bennett needs to come up with another idea. But now he's got Spock back in place. Everything is, in a in a sense, reset to the way that it was. But you know, when when he when he arrived uh, at the franchise, but Star Trek Four is probably the most different of any Star Trek movie. Like, how how did that come about? What did did the ideas start with Bennett, or did they start somewhere else? Where did he find them? Any of that stuff? I, he talks about how, um, you know, the, his favorite of the films that he made, Star Trek films, was two in terms of, uh, you know, the finished product. But that the most enjoyable process of making the film, the one he says, I think he used the word most satisfying, was four. Because by four, they had their wind. You know, they knew they were rolling. You know, they, they knew how to do this. And, you know, Nimoy was back as director because he was so incredibly, you know, good at the direction in Star Trek three And you know, want, they wanted to kind of keep going with that. And, but there was a discussion between him and Leonard Nimoy that, you know, we had been through, the, the characters had been through a lot of sort of tragedy. You know, every film, you know, major character died. You had Decker die in the first film. You had, of course, you had Spock die in two. You had the Enterprise die in three, you know, and David Marcus died. I mean, you know, Kirk lost his son. I mean, it's just, in a way, they were sort of, you know, they were they weren't depressing films to watch, but they were, they were serious and they were, you know, dramatic. And so they wanted to do what I think Bennett had noticed when he watched the 79 episodes, which in essence, I mean, in some ways that's sort of maybe one of the first examples of someone doing binge watching, right? Uh, where you just watch all 79 episodes. And, and, you know, certainly when you get to that second season, every, you know, every five or six episodes, you're getting a kind of a comedy, 
you know, um, Trouble with Tribbles is fairly soon followed up by a piece of the action. You know, I mean, there, there's there's a willingness to be a little bit lighter. And I think that that was that was Bennett's directive of we need to lighten this up a little bit. And then it was Leonard Nimoy who really thought of the idea of let's deal with something about the environment. Let's bring in this concept of, you know, what humans do to the environment and the whales. And that was really his his idea and his contribution. So the two of them, you know, get together and devise this idea. Um, and then Bennett starts writing, starts the process of writing the first draft. And then a few other writers are brought in. Uh, that doesn't work out as well. And um, then Nicholas Meyer is brought in. And then, then Hart Bennett and Nicholas Meyer mesh out what is really the, the final version of the script, although there's different credits, you know, um, on the script. So, um, you know, that's a, that, you know, and he's also, you know, he's, he's, he's there, you know, on, on the set. He's there as an active you know, part of that creative process. Um, you know, Art Bennett was not one of those producers who was, you know, watching things from afar. He would often be on the set. He would be there to help. And then that would be, that is useful to have, you know, Nicholas Meyer in a way with four is sort of asked to come in almost as a script doctor, although most of the time script doctors don't get any credit, right? But he comes in because he actually, re, he re actually writes the script, you know, for co-writes the script for four. So it's not a script doctor function, but he wasn't like Nicholas Meyer was on set a lot. So so the benefit of have for four, so the benefit of having Bennett there was you had the guy who wrote the script too and could kind of work through machinations with everybody. And that was always helpful um, throughout that process, you know, having, you know, and then same thing, Gene Roddenberry would sometimes visit the sets too. And to have that person there and to help with, you know, how should this look or how should this be held or that kind of thing was thing was beneficial. So he, he helped, you know, not just in the story, but also in communicating what the intention of the story was while they were filming. Now, is it accurate to say, you know, you hear a lot of people uh, talk about this, but the, the script for, um, Star Trek four was kind of unique in that Bennett wrote the 23rd century stuff and Meyer wrote the 20, 20th century stuff. Is, is that accurate? That is accurate. Right. In fact, um, there's an exact line. I think that, I think it's the line where they say something about the pollution content in the environment that begins Meyer's script. Meyer's part of the script. So everything before that line is Harv Bennett. Um, and then everything after that line until the return to the to the 24th century is um, Nicholas Meyer, and then it picks up with Bennett again at the end. That's weird. Yeah, but hey, that's really cool. Yeah, it worked, yeah. I guess. All right, so Star Trek Four, you know, arguably the big, biggest success, at least the the movie that broke through the into the mainstream, probably more than any other movie. And I'm sure that the studio was very happy with the results, and they you know, keep Bennett on for Star Trek V. And um, I think most people would agree that Star Trek V uh, didn't really work out as well as they may have hoped. Uh, what what went wrong? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, five. Uh, there's things about five that I think are, are really great. Um, uh, just it is my own opinion. Of course, people can disagree, think it's horrible or think it's better than this. But um, you know, I think that there there probably is n none of the films that keep Kirk, Spock, and McCoy together as much. You know, they're kind of separated into a lot. 
They're separated in three for sure, right? Obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, they're separated in four. You know, they each have their own missions. You know, Scotty's with uh, with uh, Bones and, you know, Kirk and Spock are together. Whereas five, you really, it's the three of them together in a way that none of the other films do. And I, I like that a lot, you know. Um, it's kind of the Return of the Jedi thing where at least for, you know, 25 minutes of Return of the Jedi, you get all the characters together, you know, all on the same mission. And I, I like that kind of thing where you really get to see them interact with each other like you did on the show. And, you know, the, the campfire sequence, I still think is brilliant. You know, I, I think that that encapsulates their relationship. And there's a lot to like about five. Um, the 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 problem with five was really the the premise of it, right? The, the idea that the initial premise of it was that they would actually meet not God, but the devil disguising himself as God. And there was literally a, a, a travel through Dante's Inferno. Um, and so the film wasn't going to say whether God existed or not. The film was going to say God existed in our hearts, but that the devil actually existed. And that was a, that was a bit of a problem. I mean, you know, you, you're st- you know, Star Trek and religion never really mixed well uh, together. And, you know, although Deep Space Nine did it well, right, um, mixed religion and, uh, you know, that was a different entity and they had a lot of time to develop that and what that meant and so on. But, you know, prior, the original show kind of stood away from that. There's like one reference to a Christmas party and just, you know, not a whole lot of religious references except Uhura's mentioning, you know, that when the, 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 they're talking about the son, they're talking about the son of God. You know, there's a very light, references to religion. And so, um, and of course, Roddenberry was a humanist, so that that's reflected in, in a great deal of his, his Star Trek creation. And, and, and so it just, you know, it, it, it was a film that would alienate a lot of people. The studio, I think, recognized that. Harv Bennett recognized that, you know, that you have a problem here, right? What if the image, how do you show God, right? And so, and then what if that image doesn't mesh up with the audience's image? Um, no matter what their religion, you've got a problem here. And so there was, a, you know, I think William Shatner has a really good discussion about this um, where it's a question of compromises and that compromises were made. And once you start compromising, that can be a problem, you know, collaboration is one thing, listening to other people and other, but compromising can be, if you have a vision, compromising, it's a problem. And so there are compromises all over the place, right? There were supposed to be these, you know, 12 rock men who, you know, chase after Shatner in this really great ending sequence. And then it became, you know, one rock man, you know, and then it became a guy in a suit and then it became lightning bolts because they just couldn't make it work special effect wise. And so, um, you know, I think Harv Bennett, was able to uh, help. He brought in, you know, there was the, the writer, David Lowry was brought in who really punched up and helped the script. And I think that he, he helped steer the script in a little better direction, which was, well, if, if it, you know, if we're going to do something with God, it can't be God, but how about an alien who's fooling the crew into thinking he's God? And then that becomes like sort of acceptable to everybody as a compromise, but it is a compromise. And so it's because of that, I think, that Star Trek V, you know, and there were also other edicts, right? Why, why was Star Trek IV so successful? Some people thought it was the humor that made it successful. So um, that humor came out naturally because it was a fish-out-of-water story, Star Trek IV. And so the characters could be funny um, and not know the environment around them, right, and make mistakes like Scotty with the mouse, you know, talking into the mouse on the computer. But 
you can't do that same kind of humor when they're in their own environment where they're all insanely professional and wonderfully talented, right? So when Scotty doesn't know where the corridor, you know, bulkhead is and he hits his head on it, it just doesn't work. That would have been okay if it was in 1986 and he did that, you know, but it was, it's not okay in his, in what is literally his environment. And so, um, for that reason, you know, the, I think the, the desire to have to put humor in there as, and as much humor as the, as Star Trek four, um, and also the sort of flawed premise that was the problem that Bennett faced. So d- despite the, uh, maybe failure of, of Star Trek five, you know, obviously Bennett had a, a very good track record and, you know, with the 25th anniversary coming up, there was obviously going to be a Star Trek six and, it was kind of an interesting situation, a lot similar, very similar to what's going on right now uh, with the, the 50th anniversary, where it's like, we know that there's going to be a Star Trek movie. What do you do to make it special? And once again, the studio did return to Bennett, correct? Yes, he was uh, slated to produce six, um, and um, they were beginning the process of that. He was very concerned about the time frame. You know, I think everybody was, even when they were making it, you know, as they were filming it, they were worried about the time frame. But um, what, he was at a, a party, um, and uh, Ralph Winter, who, of course, had a very important role himself on many of the Star Trek films, um, he had an idea, which was, what if we did, you know, sort of two movies? What if there were two movies that year? Uh, you know, or two movies within a period of time in which to celebrate this anniversary. And what if one of them was a traditional Star Trek film, you know, Star Trek six, but what if one of them was a prequel? And he pitches this idea to um, Harv Bennett and says, you know, why don't we do this? Why don't we do it? Young Kirk and Spock, how did they meet? You know, um, uh, what was their life like at the Academy? And that would not preclude there being not only another Star Trek, you know, a Star Trek six, but a Star Trek seven and eight, you know, we, we, that doesn't mean we have to stop doing these other films, but it, but it, what it could mean is opening up two franchises, right? Um, it could mean that you could have two film franchises going where you have younger, young Kirk and Spock and you have the traditional Kirk and Spock. And so, um, Harv Bennett thinks this is a great idea, um, works with, uh, again, David Lowry, who did the script for Star Trek V, and they produce what Harv Bennett says. Um, he works on the story and everything with that, Harv Bennett. Um, Harv Bennett believed this was the best Star Trek script out of all of the Star Trek scripts that he, that he worked on. And it was a story uh, called, sometimes you hear it called The Academy Years, sometimes it's called The First Adventure, but the idea was... Um, you know, the movie opens up and some of the sounds familiar, you know, if you want to stretch it, I guess it sounds familiar, but, you know, but maybe you don't have to stretch it. Depends on your perspective uh, when you think of Star Trek 2009. But it's a st- it opens up with with William Shatner or, you know, and 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 some of the other crew and Shatner's giving a speech, you know, at graduation. And then the cadets are kind of like, how did you get, you know, how did you become who you are? You know, how did you meet Mr. Spock? And uh, so Shatner tells a story, right? And then then it would dissolve back into the past. And well, we would see the first scene of young Kirk would be him in a crop duster um, going through Iowa, flying very, very recklessly and getting in trouble for that, which, of course, echoes the way that he's introduced in, you know, uh, in the Star Trek 2009 film. And Bennett was not happy with that echoing, you know. Um, 
or as he says, the the, the placing of the Grand Canyon in uh, in Iowa, which you know is unfair. There are quarries in Iowa, but whatever. Uh, so, so uh, but um, uh, you know, so that then Kirk, you know, is this kind of you know, you know, sort of Top Gunish, you know, uh, cocky kid, um, and he goes to the academy. And he and he meets his roommate is is, is McCoy, um, who has returned. You know, uh, just changed his whole life. He's divorced. He um, they got to reference Star Trek Five. He is saddened over assisting his father. You know, with his suicide, and uh, um, and so he decides to go into Starfleet and, and literally escape and start a new life. And um, they meet. You know, Scotty is met there, and also. Kirk and Spock become rivals, but they're contemporaries in the academy together. And the idea of the story is there's a guy uh, named Calibur, Calabar, who is uh, an alien who comes from a world where they still have racism and they still have slavery. Now, how that could have worked where he's in Starfleet Academy, I don't know, but he's also next in line for the throne. And um, he does not like Spock because Spock is an alien. You know, he's green blooded and he has racist feelings towards it. So Caliber and his buddies beat up Spock and then they get expelled right around the same time. He becomes the leader of his world um, and uh, kidnaps the ambassador to Earth from his world who wants to end the slavery. And so Kirk, Spock and McCoy and, and Scotty you know, commandeer a ship called the Enterprise, but not the Enterprise we know. And they defeat this bad guy. And it's a story about prejudice and discrimination. And Kirk is, you know, uh, uh, Bennett had talked about how the love story between Kirk and and the character in there named Cassandra Hightower was a really lovely, unusual love story for Star Trek. And it was a tragic love story. And it explains why Kirk really couldn't have relationships with people. And so, um, you know, it sounds like a very interesting story and, uh, it was, it was greenlit. They were given a budget, $27 million. You know, they started to do scouting of locations. Um, and of course the plan was also to do a Star Trek six. And so, uh, what happened is there's, there's people at Paramount who didn't know that Shatner and Nimoy were not the main stars of this new film. And they they start raising a red flag. Of, what do you mean that they're not in it? You know, um, and they're like, well, they're in it, but it's a wraparound. You know, and, and at the end of the movie, when they return back to the to the you know to the this, to the familiar world of Star Trek with Shatner and Nimoy, you know, it's beam me up, Scotty, and it could be that they're going on to their next adventure. You know, so it's a uh, it, it was a big disappointment for Bennett that that eventually the film was decided that they weren't going to make it. But although that decision was never formally made, what happened was there was backlash. Some of the actors didn't like it, didn't like the concept of younger people uh, coming in and in essence, you know, them being denied, you know, understandably denied the chance to play the role that they had made famous. Um, there was a lot of misinformation that this was replacing the original crew. And uh, and that there was also misinformation that this was like Police Academy, that it was like a comedy. And that it was going to, in essence, denigrate the characters. And because of all that misinformation, Paramount really stepped, took a step back. And what they said to, to Bennett was, let's make the traditional Star Trek VI first. And you be the producer of that. And we're going to pay or, pay or play, you know, you for Star Trek, this, this new Star Trek film. So we're going to pay you no matter what. But we'll make this film after the other one. And Bennett's feeling was they were never going to make this other film, that this was just a way to get him to make Star Trek VI, and it would be unlikely that they would 
make this other film that he had really poured his heart and soul into and, were, and was ready to go, you know, and could have for the, for the anniversary of Star Trek. And, um, so he voluntarily left. I think there's a misperception out there that he was not asked to do six or that he was fired. And he, that is not the case. He chose not to do six, um, and, you know, turned down a pretty a sizable paycheck to make, you know, knowing, you know, you're getting paid double, right. To make one film basically. Um, and, but he didn't want to do that. He, he really believed in this other script. And in fact, several times had tried to get it made, uh, tried to get it made with Sherry Lansing as early as late as 2006, um, 2005, somewhere around there. And she had liked it. <laughs> um, she had thought about doing it, but then there was enterprise, you know, so, um, that was really the prequel show. And so they decided to back away from that. So he, he, he really had a great affinity for that script and, um, would have certainly been the producer of Star Trek six. Now, whether that would have taken Star Trek six in a different direction or not, you know, um, I don't know. I, I, I would presume Bennett would have turned to Nicholas Meyer to direct and write. So, you know, it, it, it probably would have turned out to be much the same. But Leonard Nimoy steps up then, right? Leonard Nimoy, in essence, becomes the role that Harv Bennett had. And um, it's really, again, Leonard Nimoy's story, along with Nicholas Meyer's story, that gets made. So wouldn't, wouldn't Leonard Nimoy have collaborated in that way with Nicholas Meyer? Maybe not. And then we wouldn't have gotten Star Trek VI, which was, which was really great. So... Um, but, you know, in, in every one of the films, you know, uh, minus number one, um, Nicholas Meyer was asked to write every single Star Trek film. He was asked to write Star Trek five. He was asked to write Star Trek, uh, you know, two and four and so on. And he wrote, he wrote them all. He was asked to write Star Trek three, but did not want to bring Spock back. And he, he agreed to write four because Spock had been back. So it was done. So he may as well write it. Right. Um, and five, he couldn't write merely because of timing, you know, and uh, it would have been interesting to see what Nicholas Meyer did with Star Trek five, you know. Um, but uh, so I'm, I'm sure that Bennett would have turned to Nicholas Meyer again, you know, uh, for Star Trek six. But it probably would have been different, you know, than what we know. Um, so uh, that's the history, kind of how he how he wound up leaving the, the Star Trek franchise. It's weird. Like I, I had never heard that they were planning on doing both movies. You know, that's really kind of ahead yeah. of its time. You hear a lot of I mean, everyone's doing that now. You've got like the Marvel Cinematic Universe or Star Wars with mm -hmm. the spinoffs and everything. And that's kind of brilliant that they came up with that back in 1989. It's really too bad they didn't do that. Yeah, it would. Yeah, it would have been. It would have been interesting to see what you know. Of course, that would have precluded. Then you know, for the for the new fans or the fans who like Star Trek, the J.J. Abrams universe, um, they wouldn't have been, you know, unlikely that I mean that they would have rebooted again. Yeah, you know, would have had to need to reboot. You know, who knows? Yeah, or maybe maybe it would have become like James Bond, where it's like, yeah, every you know twenty years or so, we're going to get a new crew. You know, I mean, who knows? Um. And I, just one one thing going back to that, just because I'm curious. I mean, you said that it was greenlit, and I know that, you know, I've, I've heard, I think it was Bennett say that, uh, like, the people who he wanted to cast would be uh, Ethan Hawke as Kirk and John Cusack as Spock. But I'm wondering, was there, like, a director in place? I mean, because you said there was, like, a budget and everything. Was there someone who he was eyeing to, to direct this movie? Well, there was a budget. There was a... Um... There was a budget. There was a, um, 
you know, conceptual art done. There was scouting location work done. Um, and there was a fully realized script, you know, um, I've never heard whether or not they had gotten to the phase to, to the to the choice of the director. Um, you know, I I could have seen that Nicholas Meyer would have been approached for that too. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's possible, you know, I I don't know if he ever had any aspirations of that, but perhaps uh, uh, Bennett might have thought about directing it. You know, yeah. uh, you know certainly, or you know, you could have asked Leonard Nimoy. That would yeah. have been an interesting choice, right? Th- that would seem like the way to go. Like, oh, yeah, kind of like with Star Trek Three, where it's like, well, you're dead, but hey, you know, why why don't you come and make this movie? And then you're still like involved, or in this case, like you're not in the movie, but you can, you know, make the movie, right? Can, can you imagine John Cusack as Spock being directed by Leonard Nimoy? <laughs> that would be it. Crazy. Could work. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting idea, but. Wow, it's too bad. And that was their that was their tendency back then, right? I think you know they approached uh, Leonard Nimoy to direct Generations. I mean, they they kind of kept it in the family, the small family of, you know, people who had been successful at it before, um, and uh, it's likely that that would have been the, you know, the the plan. So they you know they might have gone back to to somebody else to, you know, to direct it. You know, they had done it before. Yeah. So. Just just to kind of wrap this up, I mean, um, you know, any any final thoughts on Harv Bennett or, or what his, what do you see his contribution to, to Star Trek on the whole as, as being? Like, do you think that Star Trek would exist in the way that it, it does now if it weren't for him? No, you know, I think there's, uh, well, there's, you know, just from a, even a longer perspective, just as a science fiction fan, you know, he, he took, uh, you know, he knew how to take a book, you know, uh, you know, like, like the book that the six million dollar man was based on and turn that into a, into a franchise, you know, and, and a wildly popular one, toy lines, you know, uh, you know, uh, indelibly indelible cultural icons, you know, people still riff on the whole noise sound effect, right. And slow motion to show the bionics and, and all of that today. And so he was just a very creative person. I think he, you know, he was, and he was brilliant, you know, when he was a young man, he, um, he was on a show called quiz kids, which was a show where, kids and it was like who uh, are you smarter than a fifth grader for you know the 1940s um and 30s and he was on the radio show version of that and um you know he was he was on the staff at the chicago sun times at a very young age um he had been uh his mother was a newspaper reporter and he was a newspaper reporter and you know he had always been kind of a writer and a creative person he was an actor and i think he brought all of that sensibility he understood the whole world of how to make something, you know, he had been in the business of television. He had been in the business, you know, he had been in the business of, of journalism. He had no, he, he knew how to write, he knew how to tell a story. And I think that, uh, those are, you know, as important as any of the kind of more mundane things that a producer does, you know, working on the budget and that sort of thing. Although that's very important for making something like Star Trek work. He, he used to say, you know, Star Trek set in the 23rd century and now you got to go build everything. You know, because there's <laughs> we don't live in the 23rd century. So uh, how do you afford that and how do you realize that? And um, I think without a doubt, Star Trek two to me is the is the fulcrum point of uh, the entire Star Trek franchise and and had two been unsuccessful in whatever format it was. I really don't think there would be a Star Trek at all. Um, there would not have been next generation. There would not have been the spinoffs. Maybe somebody would have tried to reinvent it, but it would have been, 
at that point, a, a franchise that probably had been quasi forgotten about, you know, and, uh, Everyone who contributed to that film uh, deserves a deserves a great deal of praise because that that film saved the franchise from becoming irrelevant. And and he is one. I think you know you can pick. I I think there's you know there's Gene Roddenberry for sure. There's Gene Kuhn. There's um, uh, Nicholas Meyer. There's Rick Berman. There's Ira Stephen Bear. You know Michael Pillar. J.J. Abrams, there's like, you know, eight, nine people that really have sort of shepherded or controlled Star Trek. Um, and one of those people is Harv Bennett. And in fact, he controls, you know, for 10 years, the Star Trek franchise as we knew it. And I think he, you know, uh, besides the loss of him as a, just a person, you know, a, 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 from all accounts, a, a, a wonderfully creative, generous, collaborative talented person um we lose also this you know this week in addition to Leonard Nimoy we lose you know somebody who really was this creative energetic force who was able to make people who had different opinions work together and so he kind of lived Star Trek as a producer um the message of Star Trek and being cooperative like that um when you're getting a lot of stuff thrown at you you know from people who don't like this or don't like that or want that want it this way and how do you meet all those needs and so um I really think he deserves a great deal of attention and I hope that, you know, um, he's not going to become, you know, he's not going to be, be sort of forgotten or um, is somebody who we don't continue to reference as being very important to Star Trek through, throughout all the permutations that are going to follow. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you very much, John. Uh, it's been really interesting and informative and uh, yeah, we, we really appreciate you coming on to talking, talking to us. Uh, now you've got, Another convention appearance coming up, um, but in June, right? Yes, uh, gonna be at the um, the Chicago uh, Creation Entertainment Convention. Um, we got three talks planned, um, and uh, should be a great deal of fun. Uh, one of the ones I'm really looking forward to is a discussion of the making of Star Trek VI. Got a lot of new information, lots of great stories, uh, some pictures, uh, some never before seen pictures. Uh, so it'll be a, a you know an, a, another chance to celebrate all the people that made uh, another great Star you know really a, a, you know uh, one of the great Star Trek films and I think one of the great you know one of the great films uh, of all time period I love uh, Star Trek six it's just uh, you know a great deal of fun and it, uh, so I'm looking forward to sharing that with people oh yeah for sure I mean I I love Star Trek six you know more than pretty much anything in Star Trek so. I, I I can't wait. I'm I'm definitely planning on coming that day. So great! Uh, I'm excited. You should come up, Drew. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> that would be great. All right. A anything else you got going on, or? Yeah, I think we're going to be at the uh, Las Vegas convention too this year. Oh um, wow! So if anybody's out that way, yeah, I think so. And um, uh, you know, have uh, uh some nice um. We actually have a Star Wars talk planned uh, coming about Star Wars through newspapers. That's in November. That's a ways off, but it's right before the new movie. And uh, going to take a look at uh, the 1970s and the whole Star Wars phenomenon as told through newspapers and try to give uh, especially younger people a sense of really what an amazing phenomenon that was. That That's one of the reasons we did the research for the Star Trek through newspapers was to give, give those people who might be new, new fans to Star Trek a sense of the amazing fan life in the 1970s and um 
really there hasn't been a phenomenon ever since Star Wars like Star Wars. Even things like Harry Potter and things I don't think touch Star Wars in terms of how it, it the, the the meteor strike it was on the culture. And um, so that's going to be a really fun talk. So we got a lot of really fun and, and I think interesting research to share uh, coming up over the next six months. Excellent. Well, thank you very much again. We we really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, you're, you're welcome back anytime. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Well, that was fun talking with John today about Harv Bennett. But that's just one of the Trek topics we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. And celebrate his life and celebrate his work and his talent and his integrity. And, and if you get a tear in the eye, that's okay. That's, that's, he would approve, Spock would approve. And... Um, you know, he'd say, you humans, why do you feel you need to do this? But but he would approve. Earl Grey. Like, I'm expecting Ricardo Martavon to, like, walk around the corner and be like, Captain Picard, welcome. This is Rise of Five. The shuttlecraft. The shuttlecraft. The orb. Usually you want to be able to capture it or isolate one, but you, you can't do that either because it just keeps, you know, so really does seem like a conundrum of, okay, how do we take this down? You know, this minefield, they are the triples of war. To the journey! One guy's like, why don't we just write better stories for Wesley? And then the lead writer's like, you out now! <laughs> the ready room. Riker's all pissed because he can't prop <laughs> his leg up with no gravity. <laughs> he tries, though. He tries. He's trying. I can, I can picture it. He's but got then the just, momentum makes him somersault. Which really just makes yeah, him yeah, look he's, spread he's eagle. Twirl, going in circles. He's spinning. <laughs> Commentary, Trek stars. It's also the end of a character and a thing that is really about how uh, death is just a part of life. And that while there's an end, it doesn't mean that it's the end. Literary Treks. Well, actually, it started out life as a comic book pitch. I originally came up with it to pitch to Wildstorm back when they uh, had the comics license. The idea was it would be a one-year series that would run throughout the 12 calendar months of 2001, which was the 35th anniversary of Star Trek. The 602 Club. Sometimes that just works better because you can create and craft a, a story that's very compelling because you're not having to worry about what's happened to other places. Okay, we have to make sure this is going to connect to this, and my guess is somehow Agent Carter is going to have something to do with uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. later on, and maybe something that happens in Age of Ultron. Warp 5. In the history of Axanar, Alec Peters and Christian Gossett wrote a section of the history dealing with the Arcanus campaign. And in the Arcanus campaign, a majority of Starfleet ships were destroyed. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and get in on the daily Trek talk. you find them on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, or SoundCloud. Or you can just stream from the website. You can visit trek.fm slash podcast to get all the links. Let's tell everyone where they can contact us if they'd like to share their thoughts on Harv Bennett. You can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send a show and choose Standard Orbit. That'll come to both of us by email. You can also use the button on the left-hand column of any page to send us a voicemail using webcam's microphone. And you can talk to us and our other listeners at our Facebook group, The Babel Conference. In social media, you'll find our Facebook page at facebook.com slash trekfm, and on Twitter, under username trekfm. Mike, where can people find you out of orbit? 
Oh, well, you can find me right here on Trek FM doing commentary, Trek Stars, with Max and John. And we will be covering Harv Bennett, but we need to get through Leonard Nimoy first. And then you can also find me on commentarytrackstars.com, where I do commentary track stars off topic with Max and Brandon. And you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K. And you can find me on Twitter at 005, D-O-U-B-L-E-O-F-I-V-E, and on the Babel Conference and other places around the internet. And I'd like to say that this episode marks my 150th podcast. Oh, excellent. Congratulations. So so there's a there's a milestone yeah, that not I bad. never ever imagined I'd get to. Not bad. All right, before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring Standard Orbit to you each week, and our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible's a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. Audible's the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers and even some of the most famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive and Federation, Audible has something for everyone. Mike, what do you have for everyone? Well, I have an adaptation of a movie which was co-written by Harv Bennett, and that's Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. Uh, the novelization is by Vonda N. McIntyre. It's narrated by Leonard Nimoy and George Takei. And uh, the description says, To save Earth from destruction, Kirk's crew must rescue a part of the past. From the towering Star Trek motion picture, featuring a dramatic reading by Leonard Nimoy and George Takei, and enhanced with sound effects and original Star Trek television series theme music. And you can get this book for free. Since you listen to Track FM. The show music? You know, I kind of like that. It's kind of cute. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. You have to check that out. Yeah. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get it for free, along with a 30-day trial to see how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've yet to read and a latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Standard Orbit and Trek FM. We'd like to thank Richard Rutledge Jr. again for being our associate producer. You can find him on Twitter at RUT8972, and we really appreciate him supporting us on Patreon. Yeah, thanks, Richard. And if you'd like to support us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash trekfm. There, you'll find a list of donation levels where you can get things like exclusive digital goodies, early access to episodes, access to our project manager, and even be listed as an associate producer for our shows. You'll also find out where the donations can go, things like covering the monthly cost of hosting and distribution, hiring an editor for our shows, and upgrading our equipment. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm, so check it out. Next week, we'll have Mark Cushman back to talk about Season 3 of TOS and some of the -the behind-the-scenes stuff that you might not have known from there. Yeah, can't get enough of season three. We all know it's the best. And we've got enough content for two episodes from from our conversation. So for those of you who complain that we didn't talk about season three enough, we've pretty much talked about it nonstop. Yeah. But after this, probably never again. No. We so get, you better we're gonna enjoy have, these two episodes. Yeah. We're going to have Andy back to talk about season oh. two. Yeah. And then eventually her with season three, but I don't know how long it's going to take her to get through that. She'll yeah. need a lot of wine. Oh, she might love it. She might think that season three is the best. Maybe. That'll be an interesting conversation. Yeah. <laughs> well, everybody, thanks for listening. 
Have a good week and keep on trekking. It is the will of Landrew. Mr. Chekhov, take us out of orbit ahead, walk factor one. Hi, sir.